This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Dropping a little flavor in your ear right there. That's Jeff Simmons on audio. We appreciate you, my man. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. I'm America's Read, the Whitney M. Young, Jr., Professor of Marketing here at the Wharton School of Business. We are, of course, live. This is Marketing Matters on Business Radio here at the magnificent institution called Wharton. I'm happy to welcome our next guest to the program. This is Alina Sorescu, Professor of Marketing, Texas A&M University. Welcome to the program, Alina. Thank you very much for having me. Very excited to have you here. Your research is fantastic. Congratulations. Uh I love this part of our show, uh, Alina, because what we like to do is we like to bring the knowledge directly to the people. And we love to invite the gurus, the scholars that are out there doing the research that powers all of the learning that occurs in the classroom and in the textbooks. So it's always fantastic when we're able to uh, get a little bit of the time of the scholars that are out there to come in and share their wisdoms, particularly in their cutting edge uh, new research that they're working on. So we're extremely excited to have you here. Uh, But I would like to start off, as I always do by giving our listeners a little taste of your particular journey. So I'd like you to start us off by telling us a little bit about how you got started in academia, how you found your your way to wanting to study concepts that are associated with our field of marketing, and just give us a little bit of backstory so that we can uh, understand things a little bit better. Sounds good. Well, I uh, grew up in Romania, which was a communist country for most of my childhood. I was, in fact, 18 when the communist regime fell. And um, so overnight, I went from one uh, product in each category um, to all of a sudden choices and branded choices. <laughs> uh-huh, and, uh-huh. Um, what was, was that a, like? So what was that like a weird experience? It was like suddenly the, the paradigm shifted like literally overnight? Tell us a little bit about that. It mm-hmm. was literally overnight. So all of a sudden we had choices and, and you know, I had lots of questions such mm. as, you know, what do I trust? What mm-hmm. do these brands represent? And, um, and, and so a lot of... Uh, questions, but not a lot of answers, Mm. because what we studied in business school at the time was really planned economy, and there's not a lot of room for marketing in a planned economy. Gotcha. And so I was actually studying uh, math, um, and, you know, I I did finish my undergraduate degree in math, but, Mm -hmm. you know, all the questions that I I was asking about what was happening around me were Mm -hmm. marketing-related. and um, I uh, met the person who was going to be my future husband, uh, oh, nice. who's now a finance professor. And okay. he told me, he said, mm-hmm. you know, you need to study marketing because <laughs> you talk about marketing all the time uh-huh. and you don't even know about it. Uh-huh. And so um, I started looking into it. I started reading some books and then I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I want to study. And mm. initially what I really wanted to study the most was branding because I was just fascinated by this concept of you know, having this signal of quality that mm-hmm. for me as a child was non-existent in the marketplace being so strong and, and how quickly um, word of mouth in an economy where information was not really, didn't have a, a strong, solid basis, mm. uh, became the the number one driving force of what we wanted to buy now that we had choices. And so um, everybody wanted to have, for instance, uh, Adidas shoes, which in, in Europe, were because you know, <laughs> we thought that this was a German brand and therefore it's got to be good. And, <laughs> um, and then so, Interesting. but the my question is, is right. Should we trust the, all the ads? Mm-hmm. You know, should, how do we really differentiate? Is the price premium worth it? 
Um, and so that's what got me started, and I, I really wanted to to understand uh, the science behind it. Very, very cool stuff. So the eradication of a planned economy basically introduced your you and your colleagues and, and your, your peers to this world of, of making decisions and really highlighted and illustrated the idea that how do I how do I decide what to buy and what a particular product means and all of these interesting things that science can help us uncover, exactly. yes? That's exactly right. And also what price is fair and essentially mm-hmm. every question that marketing answers all of a sudden was relevant for us, <laughs> whereas before um, it was not an issue because prices were also set by the state and, and they were not really... They had nothing to do with the market economy. Gotcha, so, yeah. gotcha. Very, very cool. So you, I mean, you, you brought up the the brand Adidas. That was that was a brand that was that got hot. There is it follow uh, up a little bit yeah, on that. Yeah, I mean, literally, you know, it is very interesting how quickly companies become interested, particularly by a market that was a vacuum at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, initially, you know, obviously Adidas and and uh, Procter and Gamble and others did not set up shop overnight. But what you had overnight, you had resellers that immediately um, mm. brought these products um, into the country. And so what you had overnight were these stores that were selling a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. which made it even more difficult and confusing oh. to, to try to sort through through all that. And so uh, it, it took a while for this to, to become a little bit more organized. I'm not even sure that it is to this day, um, but it provided for a really... Um, uh, interesting and rich experience for me trying to to understand how um, you know products are differentiated and what brands mean and and how pricing is set and you know what is true quality and you know all sorts of interesting questions. Very very interesting questions. The reason that I asked about that, uh, Alina, is because you you triggered in my mind. I actually just bought a pair of uh, Adidas uh, shoes. I've been a Nike guy for a very long time, and I have uh, sort of found Adidas. And I remember growing up, there was a kind of a, a rumor going around uh, amongst my peers that Adidas stood for all day I dream about sports. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even I have no idea if that was true. But somehow, you know, that was the kind of brand equity that was going around. I have only recently rediscovered them. So when you mentioned that brand, it kind of triggered some things. But going back to this idea of brand, right? So the notion of brand is very important. And as you began to study this scientifically and to try to rigorously dive into uncovering uh, this, these components of how people form a sense of what the brand is and quality and all the components that drive the DNA of the brand. Uh, apparently, obviously based on the research you're going to talk about, you started thinking a little bit about protecting that brand, right? right. Because right. it's a brand is an asset. So elaborate a little bit more on, on those kinds of ideas that kind of led you to this idea of, you know, I want to kind of study, you know, the, the kind of legal and also marketing implications of, of kind of the brand and how to protect it and nurture it, et cetera. Right, and I want to start by giving a lot of credit to the first co-author on the paper that we're going to talk about, Larissa Artekin, who's a doctoral student here at NM, and she is from Russia. So, okay. um, you know, she did not really experience communism at the same level as I did because she's much younger, mm-hmm. uh, but she did experience a market that is overtaken by counterfeits uh, because, uh-huh. you know, in, in Russia, mm-hmm. you can find a lot of branded products, but they're actually fake. Okay. And... Um, so she was really interested in studying the the effect of these counterfeits um, on the, the parent brand. Okay. Um, and so the, typically the research so far that has been done 
in this realm is mostly lab-based because it is very difficult to get data on on illegal phenomena. You can get some statistics, <laughs> yes. but it, it's mm-hmm. hard to go out in the marketplace and, and, and really identify this illegal behavior. And this is something that we actually struggle with in this paper because um, you know, trying to find illegal behavior that's not litigated. Mm-hmm. It's very, very difficult. Very Nobody difficult. wants to put it out there in the open. Everybody hopes that they can do it unnoticed. <laughs> gotcha, um, gotcha. So that, that was actually a big challenge then, Alina, trying to figure out like where, where you and your, and your co-author would land in terms of actually having um, a, a source of information, data that you feel like you could rigorously analyze and then be able to generalize to a, a more basic phenomena that you wanted to kind of end up concluding about, yes? Right, that's exactly correct. And so the first when she said, you know, I'm really interested in counterfeits and their effects, I said, how in the world are we going to get data? <laughs> Um, on that. I mean, you know, you realize that that's really, really difficult. And again, she brought me st- the statistics are really staggering. If mm. you look at the effect of counterfeits on the world economy, I mm-hmm. mean, we are talking, you know, there's a 2013 paper that says in um, just the U.S. alone, uh-huh. the losses attributed to counterfeits range between $250 billion to a trillion. Wow. Um, and, and so, you know, you're talking just an enormous um, amount of money um, so $250 billion in the U.S. a trillion globally. Um, and so then we said, okay, well, when are these behaviors documented? Gotcha. And that's what we said. Well, they're documented when firms take a stance. And they gotcha. said, okay, we're going to try to stop this, and we're going to try to go to court to stop this behavior. And then so then we started thinking, I okay, um, this should be a good thing, right? I mean, a firm protects its brand. Um, the result of this action should be positive. Mm-hmm. But then again, we also realize maybe this is the first time when the stakeholders of that firm and investors in particular um, get specific information on this particular attack that the brand um, um, is facing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a negative Thing that's oh, happening, right? right? So right. you have a positive signal. I'm trying to protect my brand. I'm trying to stop this bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But I'm also putting out there for the world to see because all these court documents are publicly available. Mm-hmm. The actual damage that my brand might have incurred. Oh, that's interesting. And so then we thought, okay, it's not clear what the reaction is going to be when you file a lawsuit. It's not clear what it's going to be depending on how the lawsuit concludes. And then it's also interesting to see in the long term, if you do take this action, okay. are these firms doing better in the long term, even though they might suffer a little bit in the short term because of this wow. attack? Okay. What happens in the long term if they manage to, remu- to remove the um, uh, the threat? Very cool. Alina, let me a- ask you this. Actually, for- first, let me reset. Uh, listeners, if you're just joining us, uh, we are uh, speaking to Professor Alina Sorescu, professor of marketing at Texas A&M University, telling us, about some very cool research about protecting the brand. And basically the research question that she's investigating in the paper that she's describing currently has to do with what is the effect of brands that experience counterfeit uh, sort of uh, infringement on their on their brands? Uh, what is the effect of filing a lawsuit and garnering a particular type of decision on the, I guess, short-term and long-term impact of the brand over time, and is that the basic question of is that a positive or a negative thing? So, if you're interested in joining this conversation, please feel free to do so at one eight four four Warden one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the phone number. So, Alina, tell us a little bit about because you mentioned there are two aspects here. There's a positive signal to protect the brand. There's also damage, a negative signal that basically says 
you know, there, this could go multiple ways in terms of how it impacts things over time. Is, did you also incorporate the idea, because I've also often heard this as well, uh, the question of the fact that there, there exists these fake f- versions of your brand is almost a signal that your brand is very much cached. In other words, the fact that there exist uh, fake uh, counterfeits is actually a kind of a, a flattery kind of component. Is that a positive thing that gets incorporated into your analysis, right, or did right. you, you focus more on the kind of more the economic kinds of signals? So we obviously cannot capture, I mean, that's an intangible that might happen, and we cannot capture that. But I'm going to argue that the cachet part of, of being copied um, might not actually bring in as many revenues mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. compensate for the losses that happen because mm-hmm. people increasingly, including affluent consumers, seem to reach for these copycats or counterfeits. Um, and, you know, we cite in a paper uh, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, who said mm-hmm. essentially Chinese manufacture fake products are just as good, if not better, than the real deal, almost encouraging consumers to almost telling them that the smart thing would be to buy something that looks almost the same as the real thing, but you would pay much less for it. And so um, I, based on the evidence that we see, so in the U.S. there are about 3,500 trademark infringement uh, lawsuits filed in U.S. district courts per year. Oh, wow. So 3,500, just to get the number uh, clear. Yes, mm-hmm. 3,500 okay. trademark infringement cases filed per year in U.S. in district courts on, on average across our sample period. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, clearly um, firms are taking steps and are not banking on um, this being a cashier. Now, I want to bring a clarification. We don't study just counterfeits. That's just one type of brand infringement. Gotcha. There are others. There are copycats. Okay. Um, and, and to give you one of the most striking examples that we found in in studying those cases, because you would think, well, what is a what is an infringement? Is some guy somewhere in a garage imitating your product? Mm-hmm. Well, you actually have very um, serious companies imitating their competitors. So, for instance, Deloitte. Uh, copied almost word for word Accenture's slogan. Oh. Accenture had a slogan called um, that said "High Performance Delivered," and Deloitte followed up and said their slogan to be "High Performance Amplified." <laughs> and so, uh, wow! I mean, you, you, you know, when I saw that case in one of the actual litigated cases, I just could not believe that a firm like Deloitte would do that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we, I have countless examples like that. And so in the first part of the paper, what we do is we provide a classification on every type of threat that the brand um, can uh, face in the marketplace. And this is based on a sample of about 2,000 such threats. And we kind of classify it into six categories. And interestingly, the largest by by far category among those six um, is something that has not been studied in the literature at all, but it seems to be the most um, frequent um, threat that brands face, at about 40% of them, something we call brand misappropriation. So let me give you an example. Okay. Um, Best Buy sued several stores that use the Best Buy name and colors 
um, as their brand. So, for instance, Best Buy Furniture, Best Buy Mattress. Gotcha. Also with, um, you know, the ubiquitous navy and, and yellow that Best Buy uses. Mm. So brand misappropriation is when you kind of copy the brand, not identical, but you copy as much of it as possible as you think you can get away with. Mm-hmm but still kind of signal that you're associated with that brand. Interesting. Or Interesting. a motorcycle shop called Harley Road <laughs> that's trying to... Har- <laughs> Harley Davidson <Yes>. with a Z. <laughs> yeah. So, Interesting. Uh-huh. So this is different from copycats. It's gotcha. different from counterfeits, but it is the largest category of, gotcha. of threats out there. And that's 40%, you said, Alina. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. interesting. So the, there are six different types. You mentioned counter uh, counterfeits, copycats, brand misappropriation. G- give us some of the results. What what is what, what did you learn from you know, how this affects brands? And maybe you can do this. I don't know if the results change by the six categories or if the overall effect is similar or the same across six categories. But tell us what you found. Okay. So there are essentially two points of interest when a firm decides to uh, protect the brand. They go to court. They file a lawsuit. And that is the first time... Um, when the market as a whole um, sees specific information about the damage that that brand has incurred from the threat. So people might be aware that there are some copycats out there, but when the firm files the lawsuit, they might see a description of how extensive the damage is. Mm -hmm. And what we find um, is that this negative signal is stronger than the positive signal of protecting the brand. And investors actually react negatively to the tune of about uh, Hmm. 0.2% when negative 0.2% when they file, when firms file those lawsuits. So a firm goes to court and says, okay, I'm trying to stop this threat. Stock market reacts negatively in the oh, short term to that action. Interesting. So your, your key DV here is stock market reaction. Very right. cool. Right. So okay. what do investors do? Because, you know, it's very difficult for us to separate how much sales were lost. And typically firms tend to exaggerate a little bit in their court filings. It, you know, it's this is oftentimes based not as much as actual loss in sale, but loss in certain brand associations or weakening of perceptions. Uh, they bring in experts that measure this in surveys. And so we don't have a very clean um, economic measure mm-hmm. of the loss, but we kind of trust that investors get the a best possible estimate based on their knowledge of that industry and their understanding of the threat as described in the course uh, in the core documents. Now, did that negative effect course correct over time, Alina? Okay, so that's the first point, right? So mm-hmm. there's the filing, and then the lawsuit proceeds, and then there are three possible outcomes, okay. right? They mm-hmm. either settle, or the plaintiffs win, or the defendants win. Got it. Now, the defendants, which is the infringer, only win in about 2% of the cases. Okay. We studied 2,000 cases, so that's our sample size. Okay. Um, and it's about half and half between settlement and plaintiff's win. So we have actually 52% of cases are settled, and the settlement terms are um, not publicly available. Gotcha. And so investors actually don't really know what happens in a settlement. Okay. And so when that happens, when a case is settled, there's... Uh, essentially a non-significant market reaction. It doesn't go up, it doesn't go down. Gotcha. And we think that's because really there's no new information. Mm -hmm. There's really nothing revealed. Gotcha. Nothing that they can use to change the stock price. Okay. Now, the more counterintuitive finding is that when they win the case, and in a good percentage of these cases, the judge also awards damages. So the, the least that can happen when you 
to the infringer when you win a, win a case mm-hmm. is for the judge to say, okay, you need to stop this, so injunction. Gotcha. But then it goes up uh, from there, including um, awarding damages. And in the case of counterfeits, the penalties can go all the way up to jail time uh, mm-hmm. for the infringer. Gotcha. And so, again, you would think, okay, they won the case. Um, they... Um, um, you know, they eliminated the threat. Investors should be thrilled, and uh, the reaction should be positive. Actually, we find that for the one case, it's negative again, oh, and um, actually even slightly um, larger, again a little higher than the negative point two percent at termination. Mm-hmm. And our thinking here again was that okay, now the the negative signal has been confirmed. Mm-hmm. The, the judge's ruling means that the threat was actually material, and this is because that's why they won the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually, if the um, um, the, the, the damages are awarded, um, the negative reaction is almost double um, as severe. And so this kind of confirms or pro- provides some support for our thinking that investors think, oh, wow, you know, this was actually really bad and material. The judge had to award damages. Um, gotcha. So this, the threat happened. Uh, there's no way around it. Gotcha. This is very, very, very cool stuff. We've got about 20 seconds left. Uh, so uh, let me just say that in terms of this is an important issue, it's very critical, and we really, really appreciate you coming on tonight and sharing uh, this research uh, published in the Journal of Marketing. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, uh, Alina. Thank you for having me. So really quickly, in, in two seconds, sure. I just want to say that if you do win a lawsuit in the long term, the long term uh, abnormal stock returns are positive. So firms recoup their losses in the long term. Gotcha. Um, so it's some short-term pain, but long-term gain. Long-term gain. We appreciate you. Thanks a lot, Alina. If you're interested in learning more about Alina, head to maze.tamu.edu. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.